Well, hello, and welcome to the RCC Podcast. We are so glad you chose to join us today. It is our hope that you are inspired, challenged, and learn something new. Enjoy the message. Good morning. Woo! Hey, my name's Stephen. If you don't know me, uh, I'm the pastor here. If this is your first time here, welcome. We're so glad you, uh, you joined us. You're joining us on the first week of a new series entitled, You Are Not the King. Now, I know that that is heartbreaking for some of you, uh, and so take a second, mourn. Okay, now we'll move on. And uh, we're going to spend the next 10 weeks leading up to Christmas talking uh, or teaching through the book of 1 Samuel, uh, which is an Old Testament book. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, it's broken up into two parts, the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament is the story of God's chosen people, the Jewish people. The New Testament is the story of Jesus' time on earth and then the launching of his church after his death and resurrection. We're going to look in the Old Testament, which is the time before Jesus. And as we study uh, Jesus on earth, I should say, uh, as we study the, the book of 1 Samuel, we're actually going to do it in reverse. We're going to start at the end of the book and work our way to the beginning. And uh, if that doesn't make sense to you, don't worry. I'll explain it as best as I can over the next nine weeks. But today, or this morning, right now, we're going to start actually in the New Testament, and then we'll work our way back. We will get to 1 Samuel at some point, I promise. We are in John chapter 5, uh, for your Bibles or your phones Right now, John chapter 5, and here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at three verses as way of introduction, because unless we understand these three verses uh, and their proper influence on how we're going to understand 1 Samuel, then we can't understand 1 Samuel. These three verses, uh, as well as maybe a handful, a dozen or so others throughout the New Testament are absolutely crucial to understanding our Bible. In fact, if we skip over these verses, if we skip over their parallel passages in Luke and uh, another part a little bit later here in the Gospel of John, uh, well, then we could actually use or teach through 1 Samuel in a way that isn't as God intended. And not just isn't as as God intended. Uh, Some of us, I think, have grown up in ways where the Old Testament has been almost abusive or used to not bring life, but to bring death. Jesus is the one who teaches us that it can be used that way. So let's look at his words. John chapter 5, verse 39. Starts off like this. You, who's the you? Uh, The you are the Pharisees. Jesus is a primary human opposition while he is on earth. Uh, If you're unfamiliar with the Pharisees, they're great scholars of the Old Testament. Uh, They uh, look at themselves as the great holders uh, of Jewish law. And so they would study the Old Testament. uh, And then they would study the commentary on the Old Testament. Uh, The most famous of those was the Talmud. And they would know this and they would study this very intensely. So that's who the you is. It says, you search. Now, this word search here uh, is, is more than just, um, uh, you know, like, hey, where are my keys? I'm kind of looking for them, okay? Or you're kind of um, casually walking through the grocery store trying to pick out something for dinner. The you search here, they searched the scriptures like Nicolas Cage searched for treasure. This was like an intense focus, a, 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 like, a, like a lifelong passion or dream. Their search was deep, it was wide, it was intense. 
Instead of saying search, we might say your aim in life is to figure out what? The scriptures. The scriptures. Again, for them, the scriptures were what we would know as the Old Testament, starting in Genesis in the first five books, known as the books of the law or the books of Moses, moving your way into the books of history and then into the poetry and then ending with Malachi and the minor prophets. That was their scriptures, 39 books as we know it today in the Old Testament, and they would know it well. If I asked everyone here, what are the first five books of the Bible? Some of us might know the titles, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Uh, but, and maybe ideas are kind of what happens in them. These guys knew them well, really well, like memorized well. And so when they say, you search the scriptures, well, that meant something. Like they intensely looked in and made their aim in life, understanding the scriptures. And so they poured over them and they talked about them and they talked about what other smart people had talked about to try and figure them out. Now, that idea might be foreign to you. Maybe you've searched the scriptures a little bit. You get the U version, verse of the day right? Or you read a chapter once, which is great. Or you've read through the Bible once. That's awesome. And you should do that. When it says these guys, when it says they search the scriptures, it's well beyond that. Well beyond. But here's something that isn't, I think, well beyond us. And that is the idea of searching. The idea that you and I um, intensely look at something and we, we apply the passion and the energy and the worship of our hearts and lives to something. And I believe we have the same motive as they had because Jesus is so good. He gives us their motives. He says, this is why you search them. You search the scriptures because you think. What's the problem there? Two of them. You and think. You think that in them, the scriptures, you have eternal life. Now, Jesus uses the phrase eternal life right here. Later, he's going to cut it off, and he's not going to use the word eternal. And in the New Testament, when Jesus uses the word or the phrase eternal life, it is talking about uh, life after death in uh, eternity with God in his presence in heaven for all of time. Yes. But when Jesus uses the phrase eternal life, he's not just talking about life in eternity. He's talking about the life that you step into when you embrace relationship with him there and now. In John chapter 10, he's going to call it the abundant life. In 1 Timothy, uh, Paul is going to refer to it as the life that is truly life. For us, we would just say, typically in our everyday conversation, we say just life. Like I'm looking for some life. Like when you're watching a, a sporting game and, and, and half the team seems asleep and you're like, show some life, right? Or you're kicking your, your high schooler in the morning. Show some life. You're just looking for something. He is a high schooler. He said, you, you, you're searching this thing. You're intently, intensely looking into it because you think it's going to produce something. That's why you're doing it. Yours could be a hundred different things. You might be searching. Some of us are searching scriptures or we're searching religion. And we've spent our lives searching those things. We've searched religion thinking it was going to produce something for us. We searched and we searched and we searched and we're still searching. 
And here's the idea in this search that if you just figured out, and here's what these guys are doing, even though they had already memorized the entire scriptures, they're looking into it. And it's almost like if you've seen the be- a beautiful mind when they got that massive formula on there, and what he's trying to do is just connect everything together. And if you just figure it out properly, then boom, it produces life. And we do this, and we do it in a different way. We're like, okay, I need like 12% more family time and, and, and 9% more money and, and, and 16% more self-esteem and whatever else. And we create this formula and we adjust the formula as we get older or something happens to us or something happens in our lives. And we say, no, no, it's more work and it's less this. And no, no, it's more family and it's less this, whatever it might be. And we're hoping that on the other side, what it actually produces is life. Life. What we're looking for. Abundant life, meaning purpose, whatever word you want to use. And for these guys, it was scripture. Scripture. By the way, Jesus is teaching something else in there. He's saying that you can actually search and know the scriptures deeply. And the way you're searching and knowing them is actually stopping you from getting to him. It's not neutral. It's actually antagonistic. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, meaning, purpose, whatever it might be. And here's what Jesus says. And it is they, the scriptures, that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. He says you're searching them because you think it's going to produce life, but you're missing the point In Colossians, Paul's going to talk about how Jesus created all things and how all things are fit together and uh, and all things revolve around Christ. With that principle in mind, I think that we can say this. You search whatever it is that you search for because you think that in it, it's going to produce life. But it's that thing that actually bears witness about Jesus. You might be searching for marriage. Guess what? God created it. You might be searching for purpose in your work. Guess what? God made you to work. You might be searching for adventure. Guess what? God created you for that. In fact, what most happens is we take something God created and we distort it and then we destroy it. It's called an idol. And so we search and we search and we search just like these guys were doing. But Jesus is teaching us something more than just the search. He's teaching us something deeply important about the Old Testament, about our understanding He says the entire scriptures there, all of them, they're bearing witness about me. They're talking about me, Jesus says. Look at verse 46 and 47. He says, for if you believe Moses, Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, and when you're Jesus and you're quoting Moses to the Pharisees, they stop for a moment because he's their guy. And right now, Moses' words mean more to them than Jesus's. He says, for if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. Now, if you're a Pharisee and you hear that, the first thing you're going to do is say, hold on one second. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You would be speaking Hebrew, not English. But you would go on and you would quote all of it. And you would say, let me tell you something, Jesus. I can quote to you the first five books of the Bible, every word that Moses ever wrote. And guess whose name is never in there? Yours. Not once. Not once. But Jesus says, for if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? In other words, if you don't see me in the Old Testament, and if you don't see how this is all just pointing to me, then nothing that I say is going to matter. It's not going to matter. In the same way, what he's also saying is this, you'll never find what you're looking for. 
you'll never find it because it's not there the way you're looking at it. You're seeing it wrong, and because you're seeing it wrong, until you see it correctly, your search is meaningless. I mean, imagine searching and searching and searching and searching and searching, and these guys have been searching. I said, well, yeah, you can keep searching. You're not going to find it. Okay, that's my introduction. Cool? All right. I could almost pray. We could be done. You could go home. Watch the lions lose. Okay. Now we're going to go to 2 Samuel. Nope, we're going to go to 1 Samuel. Then we're going to go to 2 Samuel. 1 Samuel. The story of 1 Samuel is uh, the story of the rise of the Jewish monarch. And at the beginning of 1 Samuel, we'll get there in 10 weeks, at the beginning of 1 Samuel, uh, it's going to talk about the beginning of the, the rise of the monarch. And uh, in historically speaking, um, the Jewish people uh, have gone through some difficult times and uh, they want a king. And so they start demanding a king and, and all of this. And God gives them a king and his name is Saul. And they pick Saul because he looks really good. He's, 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 he's handsome. He's, he's tall, which is apparently important. <laughs> um, and um, he's a good fighter. So they pick him and he becomes king. And they think that's going to be their salvation. And now we get to the end of the book, and it reads like a tragedy, not a triumph. So here's the end of the rise of the Jewish monarch. Now the Philistines, the Philistines were their mortal enemies. They did not get along. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel. And the men of Israel fled before the Philistines, and they fell slain on Mount Gilboa. The Israelites are, they're dying and, they're, uh, and, and things are not good. And at the beginning of the book, had you told them, um, we're going to give you a king and this is how it's going to end up, they're going to say, no way. No, no, no. That's how we've been. Give us a king and it'll turn out differently. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons. Saul's the king. And the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abadanab. Man, I can't say that. And Malkashui, Shua, the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. And this scene is bleak. Saul is the king, he's on the mountain, he's surrounded by his three sons. Things are not good, and the Israelites are afraid. Now, as he's now wounded, Saul says to his armor bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. And here's Saul, thinking about himself on top of the mountain, surrounded by his three sons. His people are in disarray. Helpless, hopeless, leaderless. Very bad situation. And Saul sees that his enemies are getting closer. And so he's got to come up with a plan. And here's his best plan. To give up his life in defeat. So as to not give his enemies a right to claim victory. 
kill me before they get to me because they might do something to me and it'll satisfy them to have me. So he's going to offer up his life in defeat to stop that from happening. But his armor bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And so Saul gives up his life. The king is dead. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Because as the king goes, so does the nation. Then Saul died, and his three sons, and his armor bearer, and all his men. Everybody's dead on the same day together. What a dark day for Israel. What a dark day. And they thought, this is the guy we need. Look at him. He's going to save us. When the men of Israel, who were on the other side of the valley... And those beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead. They abandoned their cities and fled and the Philistines came and lived in them. Now, not only his, as he died and his sons died, uh, and when Saul died, by the way, and his sons died, what that meant was this. Why it's in there is that the line is now over, finished, done. Saul's reign and his family's reign will not continue. It ended on that mountain. It's over. The nation is left abandoned. And the enemy The enemy, this is what happens. When the king dies, the enemy moves in. And so now the enemy's gonna go and they're gonna claim the enemy something that isn't theirs. Because that's what an enemy does when the king is gone. What a happy story. Yay, kings. Right? And if you're a, an Israelite that's running, you're probably thinking, how did this happen? This is what we needed. This is what we wanted. This was supposed to save us. Second Samuel chapter one. After the death of Saul, When David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. And on the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. And the men of Judah, jumping down to 2 Samuel chapter 2, verse 4. And the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. Three days later... A new king is crowned. And we're going to study pretty intensely the book of 1 Samuel. And as we study the book of 1 Samuel, we're going to 
look and see how David became king. And David becoming king seems ridiculous because he's not tall and handsome. He's not the mighty warrior that Saul was. He becomes that, but he wasn't when he started. In fact, he's overlooked, he's forgotten, he's abandoned by his family. Even later in the story, he's a fugitive on the run. He's surrounded by outcasts. He's a bit of an outcast himself. In fact, really, uh, near the very end of the story, he's actually with the Philistines until they kick him out. So he got no home. How did he become king? And so we're going to go back and we're going to study all the way to the very beginning of the book. And we're going to, in one part, ask the question, how did David become king? And let me tell you what's going to happen as we do it. We're going to see how Saul failed and David succeeded. We will. We're going to see how Saul made two crucial mistakes in pivotal, pivotal, that's not a word, pivotal Moments. Two key mistakes. His whole life. How many of us have made two mistakes? This morning, right? He makes two mistakes. Pivotal moment, moments. Cost him everything. But we're going to see David. Oh, and you don't want to be Saul because he ends up dead. David ends up king. And as we look through it, you might also think to yourself as you watch it and as you see it, and as you watch it unfold, I don't want to be Saul. <laughs> no, you don't. You don't. So watch out in pivotal, oh my goodness, pivotal moments. I'm making up words. Watch out that you make right decisions in those moments. Oh yeah, be careful. Think through them. They could cost you everything. Good lesson. You're also going to see David. You're going to see the value of godly friendship. Oh, because he's got a good one. He is a good friend and he has a good friend. And you might think, and you should probably think this, I need good gospel friends and I need the right people around me. And I need people who will be there for me in a pinch like David had. He did. That's important. Here is what else you're going to see. You're going to see David serve when it doesn't make sense. You will you're going to see him show incredible humility, self-control, and restraint. And think, if I show self-control and restraint and humility in the right times, then at the end of the story, the Saul in my life, and maybe you're not trying to be king, but maybe you just want to be manager or shift leader or captain or promoted or whatever, because you're searching for something. And there may be a Saul in your way, and you're just ready for them to die. And you think, if I do this and I do that, then eventually what will happen is at the end is it'll happen, right? And in there, you're going to see, okay, I got to persevere through tough times. There are going to be tough times, promise. David faced a lot of them. I need to conquer my giant. We all know that one. David beat Goliath. Improbable. There's actually a secular author named Malcolm Gladwell, famous business author, wrote a book on David and Goliath. You could read it along here. It's very interesting. Maybe it'll show you, man, there's just that one big thing, and if I get it out of the way, we'll win. We will see all of this stuff 
throughout this story. And let me tell you two things that'll happen as we do. The first is you will learn something. You, you will be motivated. There will be uh, lessons, tips, things that you can apply into the situation to say, no, 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 persevere through the tough time because then you get to the end and, and the men of Judah come around and they crown you as king. So just get through. Have the right friend uh, in the moment that you need it and it'll help you to move by and you'll get to the end. You get crowned as king. Persevere, kill Goliath, however you got to do it with whatever stone you got to find. Make sure you have it, use it, draw upon your old skills, all of that kind of stuff. And if you do, at the end, you get crowned king. Don't move too fast. Show restraint, self-control, all the right stuff at all the right time. And if you do, at the end, you get crowned king. And we could do that. And it's been done over and over and over again. And here's the second thing. It won't lead to life. You know why? Because you're not the king. You're not the king. The story's not about you. It's not about you persevering through your tough times. It's not about you finding your little five stones in the brook, slaying your giant, cutting off his head. It's not about you having the right gospel friendship at the right time. You're not the king. You're not the king. Oh, and I know us. So what we want to do is say, well, then where am I? Where am I then? Let me tell you where you're at. Now, the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Goboa. You know who you are? you're the Philistine charging the mountain, trying to kill the king. That's who you are in the story. That's who I am. Because this story isn't about you and I being crowned king at the end of our long journey, even though we've been overlooked, and even though this, and even though that. That's not what the story is about. It's not why God wrote it in there. You know why he wrote it in there? Because he wanted us to see the gospel. Because he wanted us to have eternal life. Because he wanted us to have abundant life. But you can't have it unless you see this properly. You ever seen one of those big, uh, one of those pictures? That they say, hey, what do you see? And you look at it and you're like, I see a horse, right? There's a mane and it looks really cool. And I can see his like portrait in his eye right there. And yeah, you're like, you sure? Yeah, yeah, I see the horse. I see the horse. Yeah, absolutely. And they say, okay, do you see the man driving the car? You're like, no, I don't see the man driving the car. And they say, okay, so look at the horse's mane. Now go right over there. Now you see his face. Okay, now look at the horse's left foot. Okay, that's the wheel. And then all of a sudden you go, whoa! I didn't see that. All I saw was the horse. But then what happens once they show you the man driving the car in the picture? 
Once you see it in a new way, you can't unsee it. And you think, how did I see it the way that I saw it? But now that you've shown it to me and I see it in a new way, I can't unsee what I've seen. See what I'm saying? Friends, we've got to see this the right way because if we don't, it could produce some incredible motivation, but it won't give us life. It won't give us life. Jesus says, you search the scriptures. You know the stories. But what you're missing is that it's all about me. So how is it all about Jesus? I mean, we could reread the story. Now you and all of your sin, me and all of mine, we're rejecting God. And his own people, the Jewish people, were rejecting him so much so that they, he was forced to go up on a mountain, not Mount Gilboa, but the Mount of Olives, not surrounded by his three sons, but his three closest friends. And as his enemies were closing in on him, Jesus, who was the true king, Saul was the standard of human perfection. That's why they had selected him. And he, uh, when he failed to live up to the law in two occasions, two occasions, he fails to live up to the law. And what it results in is his death and the end of his line. And the point of that is not to tell you not to be like Saul, but to be like David. The point of that is to show you what happens when you disobey. What happens when we break the law? End of the line. We're done. Just like Saul. And the other king, the better king, when he's on the mountain and his enemies, his uncircumcised, that just means non-Jewish, his non-Jewish enemies or his Jewish enemies, whatever, when they're all coming after him, he's got a choice just like Saul had a choice. Saul's choice was, uh, what do I do? Do I let him capture me and make this moment about me? Or do I take my life in defeat just so they won't win? Just so my enemies won't win. Saul had that choice. And you know who else did? Jesus. And what does Jesus decide? He gives up his life, not in defeat, but in victory. Not so that his enemies won't have victory, but so that his enemies will have victory. Oh, the whole story's about Jesus. So Jesus doesn't look at his armor bearer and say, draw his sword. Jesus just offers himself up. Saul is thrust in the side. Jesus is too. And then what happens? Saul dies. What happens? Jesus dies on the cross. And what does it look like? It looks like the story is over. The line is done. End of the reign. Game over. We thought this was going to be our salvation. We thought this was going to be our victory. And what does it say of his followers? Almost the exact same language. They ran, they scattered. They were afraid. 
They were hopeless. They were helpless. Then what does it say? Verbatim, almost. And on the third day, on the third day, you already know the story. I don't even have to tell it to you. On the third day in Israel, a new king is crowned. David and his reign is ushered in. And on the third day, Jesus rises and a new reign is ushered in. What's the difference though? What's the difference? Here it is. Saul's reign ends. Why? Because he failed to live up to the law. He couldn't live up to the law. And so God says, done and over. Guess what happens when David becomes king? He doesn't live up to the law. In fact, you could say he failed worse. His sin was more egregious. And if you're the king and this story is about us, then you would have to draw some crazy, ridiculous conclusion that, well, God just must love David more than he loves Saul. That's not the point of the story. The point of the story is that when David becomes king, he's just as flawed as Saul, but it's a new kind of reign. It's a new kind of kingdom. It's a new kind of covenant. It's not about living up to the law. It's about what's going on in the heart. And so David fails. And you know what God does? He forgives him. He shows him grace. Shows him grace. And on the third day, in the second kingdom, the better kingdom, the greater kingdom, when Jesus rises from the grave, we're supposed to see this in the story that as clearly as Saul died and as clearly as a new reign began in David, as clear as that, when Jesus died on the cross, the reign of the law died. And as clearly as David's reign began and Jesus rose from the grave is as clear as now grace reigns over us. And let me tell you, the reign of grace is way different and way better than the reign of the law. And when you search for that, when you make your life's aim and focus and intensity and desire to search and to find grace in Jesus, then you will find life. You will find life. But you got to see it the right way. You got to see it the right way. You're not the king. Oh, and that's so good. He is. He is, and the reign of grace is now over you. Maybe like, I don't know what that means. I'll tell you what it means. It means when you fall down, Jesus brings you back up. It means when you mess up, Jesus says, I got you. It means when you can't do it, 
He did it for you. That's what grace means. It means over and over and over again, you and I act like Saul and David, and God says, I've got you. I've got you. And here's the thing. You're going to see it later. (laughs) If Saul's kingdom tries to, to creep back in, the law wants to creep back in. Christians want to put it back over you. I say, no, you got to do this and you got to do that and you got to live up to this expectation. You got to do that. (laughs) Oh, and your only response has to be, yeah, I don't live under that anymore. Saul's dead. (laughs) I live under grace. Do you see it? Do you see it? It's the only place where life is found. Let's pray. We hope you were inspired, challenged, and learned something new. For more information about our church, visit our website at redemptioncitychurch.tv. Have a great week.